When you buy a book, which way do you go? Printed or digital? Bound book or Kindle? I'm Barbara Dundon, and this is the holiday book episode of the 20 by 70 podcast. I grabbed some folks recently in East Falls to ask them the print versus ebook question, which looms large over holiday gift giving. I actually do both. I love holding a book. That's nice, but I actually use a library app so I can rent ebooks immediately, which is very convenient. So if there's something I'm interested in, it's nice to automatically have it in my hand. I don't like e-books at all. They're not books. It's a story on a computer. I buy a lot of books, and I have a lot of books, and I have maybe a book problem, and I need a physical book. If I'm buying a book for my daughter, who's uh, five and a half years old, it, it has to be a paper book. It's so much more powerful. If I'm buying a book for myself, I'm about expediency, and I need that to be an ebook on a Kindle. Have you bought a book recently? I actually just bought one today. I backed one on Kickstarter. So when it arrives, will it be a physical book? It will. It's going to be a limited edition physical book, yeah. I don't buy books often, but I do prefer the physicality of holding something and, you know, smelling a freshly printed book. Okay, so maybe Amazon's Kindle doesn't rule the universe yet. Still plenty of love for the old-fashioned bound book. Now, to take us beyond the type of book to the titles you might want to give that special someone this December, here's our host, Chris Satulo. Thanks, Barbara. And uh, just for the record, I'm another one of those hybrid people, Kindle sometimes reading it old style at others. As Barbara said, this is the holiday book edition of 20 by 70, the scrappy little podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia. This time around, we're going to give you some opinions on the best nonfiction books that might just make the perfect gift for the wonks on your list this holiday season. No fiction recommendations from us policy nerds here at the Committee of 70. While we love your Le Carre, your Eggers, your Atwood, and your Morrison as much as the next folks, plenty of other sources tell you what fiction is hot and which is not. We are here to tell you about books about politics, policy, history, and ideas that will offer some ballast for your brain during these topsy-turvy times. So let me bring in now the perfect person to get us started, the Committee of 70's top wonk, David Thornburg. Hey, David. And before we get started with this little book club, let me tell you, dear 20 by 70 fans, just how dedicated David is to you. He's just a couple of weeks removed from hip replacement surgery, and this visit to the Wexler Studio and Writer's House on the Penn campus is one of his first post-op outings. So how's it going with the cane, David? I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling much, much, much more hip. Okay, there you go. Oh. You wouldn't believe how many hip <laughs> jokes there are out there. I have heard almost all of them. I mean, I'm going to take your word for that, David. I, <laughs> we don't have to hear anymore. Anyhow, let's get to the topic at hand. Um, books about um, policy, about politics, about history, about ideas. They're sort of your, your meat. Yeah, you're, you're hitting my uh, a sweet spot. Uh, and I actually enjoy recommending books, mm-hmm. too. I'm sort of a walking... Um, walking Amazon review site, uh, I guess. And I was born and raised in an environment surrounded by books, which 
by the way, for all of you, you know, doubters out there, uh, is probably the best thing you can do in raising a child is surround the kid with books. So books are our friends. <laughs> and uh, Right, but though, from what you told me about um, your parents and your poor mother, um, surrounding yourself by books and never throwing any of them out, like your father, <laughs> the former governor, is perhaps not the best idea for somebody who has to move occasionally. Let's just say uh, my folks have kept... Um, uh, bookshelf builders quite busy over the years, and to the point that it's it's hard to find room to maneuver in in their uh, in various houses and apartments that they've lived in. So I come by this naturally. So David, yep. what was indispensable on your bookshelf this year as we lived through uh, a very memorable year? Yeah, well, I got five, uh, and but a little bit before I get there, I want to just sort of underscore and restate why. Reading actual books these days is is so, so important. Sure. Um, we're not getting a great example uh, at the top, as it were. I think our current president said that the last book he read was the Bible, and when asked to name the book in the Bible that he liked the best, it was Corinthians the second, Or something like or that. Or something yeah. like that. <laughs> He's not a reader, yeah. let's just say. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, it's it's critically important, I think, it, even as just to be an effective, active citizen these days, to have some sense of, you know, where we've come from, the, the history of the great American experiment. Mm-hmm. Have we ever seen a Donald Trump before? Hint, read a biography of Andrew Jackson. Uh, it, it both, you know, might make sense of things, give us some sense of, you know, how the lessons of the past translate into uh, into our present and future, which leads me to book recommendation uh, number one. Um, I read this year The American Spirit, which is a collection of essays and speeches by David McCullough, uh, the eminent and wonderful historian uh, of whom I, uh, I'm a great fan, partly because he's born and raised in Pittsburgh, and uh, he actually wears black and gold at every lecture that he delivers. No, he doesn't, David. Uh, okay, you're right. <laughs> But, by the way, I'm a huge fan too. Not because the Pittsburgh thing, but because I'm a Civil War nerd. Right, know? right. So, uh, the American Spirit is a collection of his lectures and uh, essays over the years, um, and a couple things come out of that. One is uh, his em- embrace of the 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 positive uh, spirit of this country. That in which at a time when you know we seem to be just throwing things at each other all the time, this sense that people in in McCullough's view are in America are good, uh, they care about their communities and their neighborhoods, and they often band together in um, kind of great uh, acts of civic renewal um, is is reassuring at least. He also has a, uses a great metaphor in one of the. Um, one of the essays that he writes, uh, which is a reflection on a, a timepiece, uh, an analog timepiece. And he says that the, you know, the old-fashioned one with the arms for the minutes and seconds mm-hmm. and so forth. And he said, uh, the great uh, observation you should make about uh, when looking at an analog watch is that it both gives you a sense of the, of the past and the future. You can see uh, even as we're in the present, where we come from and, and where we're headed, as opposed to a digital timepiece, which only tells you where you are right now. So right. take that as a, as a metaphorical en- encouragement to, to dive into history and, and put that, that history to use. Um, so 
Well, there's, there's another thing that, that strikes me there is it's also understanding that history is cyclical. Yes. You know, th- <laughs> things come around and go around. They change every with each sweep, but there, there's some pattern there. Yeah. Meanwhile, again, the digital thing is just charging forward with no That's memory right. of the past. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's a great all-purpose kind of a, a metaphor. Um, so that's a, a great overlay on why reading particularly history is of, of value. Uh, so that gets me into book recommendation number two, and I would be letting down my legion of fans and former students if I didn't mention this one. I have kind of a reputation because mm-hmm. uh, I'm a huge fanboy of this particular book, which is The Power Broker by Robert Caro. Oh, we are going back a bit. We yeah. are going back Still a bit. on the shelves, though. <laughs> Still available. Well, I tell you what. So The Power Broker is the story of Robert Moses, who was the most powerful person in the city of New York for probably 60 years and a person that most folks have never heard of. And Robert Caro's 1,200-page book – it's only 70 hours if you listen to it on, on, as an audio book, <laughs> tells the story of how Robert Moses, starting out as kind of an urban reformer 100 years ago, mastered the art of power um, in all of its forms in the city of New York, the great uh, bridge builder, tunnel builder, Jones Beach, Carnegie Hall, uh, pretty much everything, literally, that moved in the city of New York, and it is uh, is a just a, a engrossing and captivating story. It is required reading, absolutely required reading for anybody who wants to play in the sandbox of urban politics. And I say that uh, I get I get lots of uh, backup on this. I think President Obama, when he was asked about the books on uh, his uh, bookshelf, Power Brokers there. You, know, you could wander the halls of City Hall, the legislatures, governor's offices, whatever. I mean, it, it literally is like it's a primer on, on urban politics. So. Also, David, it occurs to me particularly relevant in 2017 as um, a big part of the sort of ongoing conversation in Congress and in, certainly in state houses and city halls around the country is that infrastructure that was built in the age of Moses and with other, you know, other versions of that in other cities around America is, there's no other word, it's crumbling. Yeah. And we've talked about making the same kinds of major investment um, in infrastructure that were mother's milk to Robert Moses, but somehow we can't seem to assemble either the will or the wallet to do that anymore. Well, and this is a story of a man who managed to bend New York uh, and the political architecture of New York to his will. And in doing that, build a lot of great, uh, as you said, infrastructure. There's uh, some other issues well, yeah, about Robert he, Moses. Yeah, he, but... he bent New York to his will for good and ill. There's a lot yeah. of wonderful legacies of Robert Moses, and he destroyed neighborhoods. He was uh, His arch enemy in some ways was Jane Jacobs. You know, yep. he, was, he was of the grand stroke and the, the masterful sweep of concrete, and she was about the small details and the grid. That's and right. That's life right. at street level, that's almost the, uh, the iconic or archetypical yeah. um, argument about what city should be, Robert Moses yeah. versus Jane Here's, Jacobs. And, and he was pretty clearly a racist, even mm-hmm. by the standards of his time. So it's a complicated, very human story, uh, again, told masterfully. Here's the... Uh, Interesting little tidbit takeaway about Robert Moses. Great bridge builder, road builder, tunnels, uh, in the age of the automobile. He never had a driver's license. He never drove a car himself. He was chauffeured his entire life. So 
you know, take that as a teaser to dive into 1,200 pages. Yep. You can have it done by the beginning of the year. Right. I mean, and, piece of cake. And by the way, before we move on to the next one, if you take David's advice and read The Power Broker and really love it, as you probably will, Robert Caro's got another, what, three, four thousand, five thousand pages for you on Linda Bates Johnson. It's just an appetizer. Yeah. The only other thing I say about this, this is, my wife is a a children's book illustrator, so she and I have a lot of, like, you know, we're on the same page on a lot of this (laughs) urban policy sort of stuff. I made her read The Power Broker, and it is, uh, and she loved it. So, so, you know, take that as a, uh, as an endorsement from somebody who doesn't wallow in this stuff. Right. So let's segue from that, which is a book about political power, to a book uh, that came out, uh, I think, a year ago, but uh, has really been in the news these days, which is about uh, the evils, the practice and the evils of political partisan gerrymandering. And uh, uh, hold Look, your hold your ears. Okay, David, we're not. I'm not on public radio anymore. You're you're not on KYW <laughs> anymore. We can actually say the book's title. Yeah, here. hold your ears. Uh, the name of the book is Rat Fucked, and uh, the author David Daly is a uh, I think an editor for Slate, and he writes really the behind the scenes story, state by state, of how political operatives have commandeered the seemingly arcane art of drawing political maps to hugely uh, negative uh, effect in this in this country. And what, pray tell, David, would be the first state in the first chapter <laughs> of Ratfucked? Well, that would be Pennsylvania. Yes, it would. Yeah. Uh, essentially, the story that uh, in which Pennsylvania is a lead plays a lead role is that the after the last redistricting, the Republican Party, and this was a stroke of strategic genius, realized that uh, they needed to control the redistricting process uh, across the states, or at least in key states. And in order to do that, they needed to win substantial margins in state legislatures. So uh, the opening chapter is how Karl Rove and uh, what was called at the time um, uh Project Red Map. Project Red Map. Carl Rove inspired Project Red Map. Parachuted into an unsuspecting state legislative race in western Pennsylvania, a uh, representative named David Levdansky. Threw a million dollars of outside money into that race. Targeted mailers, negative stuff. Levdansky never knew what hit him, um, and he lost the race to a Republican. And that became part of, not the entire story, but part of how the Republicans gained a substantial majority um, in the state legislature that allowed them to control the maps. So hugely significant, well-told stories, again, state by state. Uh, Some positive stories, he talks about Iowa, which is every kind of uh, gerrymandering reformers uh, kind of... Bow ideal, right? Bow ideal, yeah. Uh, But it should be required reading for anybody interested in this issue, and there are a lot of people interested in that issue, as we are. Right, and I think uh, Rhett... Redfucked um, deserves some credit for basically laying out this somewhat arcane bit of inside politics in such a uh, dynamic and interesting way that people could grasp it and really yep. get the message. And I think this book is a little bit behind the surge of interest in Pennsylvania across the country yep. about doing something about gerrymandering. One, you know, uh, since I did read this book, I can offer one more thing. One amazing thing they did. This is this is really good. Uh, journalistic storytelling. 
one of the states he was looking at where the jagged lines, uh, you know, follow no apparent purpose. And the only way to unlock the key is to figure out, well, what voters live on this side of the line and what voters live there. In suburban Michigan, there's some jagged lines in the western suburbs. And he uh, daily actually undertakes to drive this jagged route in back and forth, up and down streets uh, across suburban Detroit and brings the reader along on the picture telling him, yeah. you know, like what pep boys or whatever, you know, he was passing. And then lays out how uh, the method to the madness of the zigging and zagging is purely political. Yep. These voters live there. These voters live there. And that's why the yeah. jagged lines And he, he brings that home. That's a that's a really vivid, compelling anecdote from the from the book. He brings it home because as he's driving this twisted, jagged route, he, he sees things that don't make any sense, that there's a library from some community on one side of the street and a rec center on the other side or, a, you know, schools on one side and, a, you know, the, the playing fields are on the other side. It's, it's from a, an understanding of, like, what communities are about makes no sense whatsoever. So he goes back and he talks to the operative who drew the maps, who was only interested in, you know, the partisan impact on this. And he described all these incongruities. And the guy looks at him with a sort of a blank expression like, I don't even understand what you're talking about, which which, to me brought home the sense that, like, the operatives in the dark back room drawing these maps really don't care about just looking at the communities. Map. Yeah, just look at the map and where the voters are, where the blue yeah. dots and the red dots are. They've never been there. The other thing that is interesting, and, you know, having been a journalist myself, I know this happens way more times than logic would ever suggest some of the political operatives that daily interviews are actually so proud of what they've yeah, done. Yeah. They are uh, remarkably open about <laughs> yeah. what the strategy was. They're, like, really proud that they did this, and they're in some ways almost unconscious of how it's going to strike the ordinary person. Yeah, which tells you how detached this uh, this art, uh, this political art, is from, uh, you know, everyday citizens and the way we live our lives. I will say this. When you finish the book, you're going to feel sick, sick to your stomach. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very troubling comment about the state of politics and the manipulation that goes on in that business. All right. Days. Well, David, a, a coming attraction. We will be talking to the author of Ratfuck, Dave Daly, in our next episode. And the good news is he has some tales to tell about since he wrote the book, which ends on a fairly dark note how inspired he's been by what's happening around the country in, in the campaign against uh, partisan gerrymandering. So there's, yep. a, there's a sort of note of uplift that we there's, can offer. Right. There's a, there's a, there's a rising, uh, what do they call that in the English, you know, a rising action. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, All right, dude, what's next up? Okay, so this one is kind of random and is not a paid political advertisement. But this summer we were in, uh, in Massachusetts, and I went – when you go on vacation, you should always go to the local public library uh, for a couple of books to read while you're there. So we're in Massachusetts, and I'm scanning the shelves, and I picked up Elizabeth Warren's book, A Fighting Chance, which was not her most recent book, which is more of a political call to arms, but this is Elizabeth Warren's story. And um, I did not know much about uh, Elizabeth Warren except for the uh, absurd and uh, – well, You're going to Pocahontas I was going to go there, but it's so offensive to me. Yeah. Let me just park it there. Anyway, so Elizabeth Warren's story is is really quite something. She's born and raised in, in Oklahoma, very modest circumstances. I think her father worked at Sears, uh, lost his job at some point. Um, 
She got a scholarship to go to, to college and then dropped out because she wanted to get married and then had a kid. And then basically she was growing up in an era where, you know, women stayed at home. Uh, the man goes off to the breadwinner job. And this is a story of her step-by-step step taking control of her life. She finds a way to go back to college and get a degree. Uh, then she decides to go to law school. Uh, and, you know, uh, the most intriguing thing about her politically is that she was a Republican into the mid-'90s. But it really was after the uh, kind of contract with America and Newt Gingrich world that she uh, emerges from that. Um, and then the book closes with her telling the story of the creation of the uh, CFPB, the, the Consumer, Consumer Finance, Finance Protection, Protection Board, which is certainly in the news these days. I found it as a very uh, compelling story. Uh, it did lead me to think, just as arm's length, again, not an endorsement, that she would have been a pretty powerful presidential candidate this last time around, and we'll see what happens in the future. But take that as a... Uh, putting a marker down for political biography. I think understanding the story of how people got to where they are tells you a lot about where they're going to go from here. So so that's uh, number four. And let me um, close this out with uh, a book that I just read a couple of weeks ago, which is a book called Dead Center by a former uh, congressman from Western Pennsylvania, Jason Altmeyer who served three terms in Congress, uh, literally was recognized as the most centrist candidate by all the statistics uh, in Congress at the time. Fat load of good that did it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> interestingly, he um, lost his seat after the last census because Pennsylvania lost a congressional seat. Republicans controlled the process. And it was his seat that was tossed out. He was then pitted against... Uh, another Democratic congressman in the primary lost, and uh, and then that seat is now uh, occupied by Keith Rothfuss in the western part of the state. It, and, and a grotesquely disfigured seat, o- only um, overshadowed by the our 7th district here in Pennsylvania and right. Philadelphia, which is near and dear to our heart. But Altmaier's story is a very personal one. He talks about, I mean, the title Dead Center actually should give you some uh, pause uh, for concern because it suggests that the center of the political process is, in fact, dead. And, uh, I mean, the stories he tells there basically that, you know, we're in this environment now where if you even talk to a member of Congress from the other side, you know, that invites all kind of shame and finger wagging and, you know, they take away your parking spot and all that sort of stuff. So it drives home the the pettiness of this partisan dysfunction that we're in. The book is a little long on problem and a little light on solution, but I think uh, the solutions that he lays out there are things that we've been really, uh, you know, digging into. Things like, you know, uh, redistricting reform, uh, opening up primaries to independents or making them top two primaries, the role of money in politics, um, and so forth and so on. So it's just, it's a uh, it's a sobering book, uh, but one that, you know, there's a lot to learn from because it's such a personal story from this from this member of Congress. And, uh, you know, we're, I actually talked to him a few weeks ago, and I think we'll 
grab him for some uh, book event and maybe get him on this podcast as well. So. Right. Well, David is somebody who for many, many years uh, has written a, a column and done a radio commentary called Center Square. <laughs> I, I can tell you that yeah. you know, trying to stake out some some turf in the center can be a perilous enterprise. And disdain for centrist is, uh, I hasten to add, a, a, one of the few bipartisan activities yeah. in this country. Both both progressives and conservatives are increasingly disdainful. And you're seeing a lot of that on, you know, on the left in the Democratic yeah. Party right now. And it was, I believe, Jim Hightower, the um, the famous and and famously pungent uh, Democratic uh, politician in the state of Texas, who uh, articulated the classic line about centrists: "The only thing you find in the middle of the road is a yellow stripe and dead armadillos." <laughs> Good line, spoken like a true Texan. Yeah. Uh, what? Just one thing about Altmaier. You know, there is a sort of a maybe commonly held perception that, that uh, centrists or moderates are just sort of like indecisive and can't make up their minds and don't really have strong opinions. And in reading Altmaier's story, I think that that really counters that notion because he was a, is a person of strong opinions. They just happen to be uh, sort of an a la carte menu rather than a, a fixed partisan menu that he can be you know, uh, pro-defense and pro, he can be sort of a deficit hawk, uh, but also can be, uh, take another position on social programs or, you know, Medicaid or Medicare or what have you. So I actually did. I mean, this is something I'm fairly passionate about, you know, the passionate centrist oxymoron. Yeah. But, you know, it has always driven me crazy that moderation or centrism is always drawn as sort of the the having of opposites, that the the partisan extremes are the authentic positions, and then centrism is simply just sort of... Like I can't make up my mind. Right, yeah, milk toast in the middle, living in the house of waffles, you know. (laughs) know, But it's like actually, particularly in the um, extremely divisive and partisan atmosphere we have right now, the only thing that actually requires courage is... To say to your own team, you know, like we can't just stay over yeah. here. We, we've got to move. We've got to like get something done. That's what gets people yeah. yelled at. Right. I would never. I would never actually describe Jeff Flake, the senator from Arizona, as as a centrist. I mean, he is a, a principled conservative, but I underline the word principle. There are certain places he was just not willing to go. Yeah. And you know, it cost him his seat, and it's cost him a ton of like hatred and invective from people who used to be his allies. Yeah. So that's the price, the centrist who says, hey, you know, you're both wrong, um, right. often pays. Well, and Altmaier too, I think throughout the book, sort of weaves in the sense of that the, the the people who are deeply invested in the political process more are more and more partisan at both extremes. Sure. But when you go talk to average folks, when he goes to not political events, but just kind of, you know, sets up shop at the supermarket to talk to average voters, people live their lives balancing these inconsistencies all the time. Um, and so the, the challenge is, uh, you know, uh, can we find ways to bring those folks more into the political process, at least to vote? Uh, to counter-affect the, the, the negative consequences yeah. of these ardent partisans. Well, my sort of shorthand summary or, or description of what's going on that I think leads to a lot of voter apathy, and it's not you know a, a, a lack of concern about where the country's headed. But when you're in a situation where you've got um, two options on offer and you listen to the one side and they're screaming, the sky is purple. 
Yeah. And you go, oh, it doesn't look purple to me. Then you go to the other side, and they scream with equal vehemence, the sky is orange. And you look up and you go, yeah. anybody here think it looks blue? <laughs> and you turn out there's nobody on the ballot who thinks it looks blue. So you go like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not like choosing between these two nutcases. Yeah. So Allmeyer's book is a good setup for, I think, what is the what is a great challenge of, of the day is to see if we can try to find a way to rebuild that that messy, productive center that ultimately, you know, gets stuff done. All right. Since it's the holiday and gift-giving season, we need to wrap this up in a bow, David. Can you read Well, re- I got to exert, what do they call that, a little um, a point, point of professional privilege. <laughs> I got to slip something in here. Oh, I'm oh. so sorry. I forgot about that. Of course. <laughs> Go right ahead, David. So my Dad. our older daughter, Blair, uh, is an author, published her first book, this summer called Who's That Girl? It's a young adult uh, novel set in Philadelphia. It is the perfect gift (laughs) for, you know, teenagers 16 to 60 or, you know, one of those kinds of things. It's actually a delightful little story. So Who's That Girl? Blair Thornburg, look it up. Review it, buy it, share with your Quickly, friends. Quickly, you got a dish. Is there a father figure in this uh, novel? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. I kid you not, one of the – yeah, there is a father figure. It's highly autobiographical. Um, the father figure, one of the reviews, according to one of the reviews, which I did not write on Amazon, says how uh, drawn the person was to the fa- father figure who is hysterical and steals every scene that he's in. So I'll just leave it there. but. Yeah. If that doesn't, you know, that should tease you enough to go buy the book. Okay. Who's that girl? With your paternal duties out of the way, now let's wrap it up and about review the, the five recommendations. Okay, five recommendations uh, from the top. The American Spirit by David McCullough. The Power Broker by uh, Robert Caro. Uh, Rat Fucked by David Daly. A Fighting Chance by Elizabeth Warren. And Dead Center by former Congressman Jason Albion. Thank you, David Zorberg. My pleasure. Since the holidays are time to look back over the year and count your blessings, one of the blessings that we're looking very gratefully at is our partnership on the 20 by 70 podcast with a group called Young Involved Philadelphia. Young Involved Philadelphia's mission is to engage, connect, and represent the young demographic of Philadelphia, which it does through a rich array of programs and events. And it's been uh, our pleasure to have a number of members of uh, Young Involved Philadelphia, including the organization's very capable president, Becca Gable, on the podcast during 2017. And we look forward to more cooperation with YIP in 2018. Okay, that's it. The final 20 by 70 of 2017. As we look back on a year of policy and politics and trying to dig into the heart of what's going on in Philadelphia, we want to express our gratitude, first of all, to Kelly's Writer's House at Penn for graciously agreeing to host this podcast in its plush Wexler studio. And we wouldn't know where to turn without the skills and good humor of the Mantha Control Board engineer, Zach Cardner. Today, he's ably assisted by Adelaide Powell. Thanks also to the producer of this episode, Barbara Dundon. Finally, holiday wishes and thanks to all of our listeners. From me, Chris Satula, the host of the podcast, and my good buddy and our head wonk, David Thornburg, the president and CEO of the Committee of 70. So that's it for 2017. Looking forward to talking to you on the other side in 2018. I'm Chris Satula.